stand up and greet those folks around you. Somebody, somebody you don't recognize, just introduce yourself, get to know them. All right, y'all can have a seat. All righty then. All right, thanks. That'll do. That'll do. That's enough greeting. Enough fellowship, right, Aaron Hamilton? Aaron Hamilton loves that thing it's, that we just did. I do that every now and again just for Aaron. Now, if you're uh, visiting with us this morning for the first time or first of a few times, we want to let you know that you're welcome. And uh, we are, you're so, in, many, in many ways, stepping into the middle of a conversation. We have been working through the book of Hebrews for a couple of years now. And um, especially these last few months, we've been in a really deep and important conversation that in some ways is coming to a close this morning. So you're here on a special morning, and I'm hoping, and I'll pray here in a moment, I'll pray that God will connect the dots for you, that even if you may not have been here these last few weeks or months, uh, that he will connect you to where we're going in these next few minutes. So let's pray. We're going to pray also for Amanda Harvey. She slipped coming in this door in here and twisted her knee real bad. So that's a heads up on your way out. It probably won't be an issue going out, but coming in when it's raining, this is a hazardous area. So we're, that's something we need to tend to, but we'll pray for Amanda this morning and Terry Blankenship as well. God, this morning we have a few things we want to bring before you before we uh, continue our time together in worship. Uh, as part of our worship, we want to lift up one of our church members is just injured, Amanda Harvey. We just pray for her uh, knee, whatever might have gone on there. We're just hoping that it's a minor injury and hoping that she rallies quickly, knowing that she's tending to kids and doing life. So whatever way we can minister to her and her family, we pray that you will give us eyes for that. Uh, also, th this morning, Lord, we want to pray for Terry Blankenship, pastor of for, uh, First Baptist Church, Greenville, uh, knowing um, that his um, state is not, that he is not out of the dark and out of the woods. Uh, we just pray for um, healing. We pray for deliverance. We're thankful that he is alive still, but we entrust him and his family into your care right now. We entrust First Baptist Church Greenville into your care. We pray that right now this morning that whoever is bringing the message in these next few minutes that this church will hear and heed and worship maybe like never before because we've been reminded, they've been reminded as we should be this morning at how fragile life is and that some bees can change your plans forever. Lord, we just lift up this church. Pray that they will enjoy you this morning, that they will trust you this morning, that they will lean on Christ, and they will walk with the Holy Spirit. Just uh, pray that whatever way that we can minister to the church, or maybe it's just praying with them and for them this morning, that we would be faithful to do whatever you would call us to do. Pray that you will deliver Terry from this coma that he's in right now and that he will be alert and attentive and healthy in these next few days.
Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for IGO Ministries. I'm thankful for the connection that we have to IGO and Brad Cardwell and Lance and Kai and the others that have been part of this ministry over the years that have become part of our fellowship or the other way around. We're thankful for the shared ministry and thankful for the shared burden for the planted church in the far corners. Lord, we pray that whatever plans, whatever curveballs I go experiences from day to day, whatever they have in store, whatever things they don't anticipate, that ultimately all of it's fueled by worship. That they're being fed and equipped as they're walking with the people in, in different churches, Lance and Kai and Brad, and they're just finding strong purchase in the ministry that they are leaning out and leaning forward and reaching out into the far corners for a robust church that's planted out there. Lord, we pray that you will be famous and glorified through their ministry. Pray for these next few minutes, Lord. I pray for your guidance in what to say and what not to say. I mean that with everything in me. Every ounce of me is uh, attentive or wants to be attentive in these next few minutes to what is from me and what is from you. Whatever might be from me, I pray that you would remove it. Whatever is the leadership of the Holy Spirit, I pray that it will be exposed, spoken lovingly, truly, and heard um, plainly. We entrust these next few minutes to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Terry Blankenship was stung by bees this week. He's a pastor of uh, First Baptist Church, Greenville. And I failed to mention what, why we were praying for him, but he, it was life-threatening. Like, he's nearly died, and he is in a coma, from what I understand, as of this morning. So we want to continue to pray for Terry Blankenship and for that this, uh, First Baptist Church, Greenville. <clears throat> if you've, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of um, instruction. If you've been with us for a period of time, this will be familiar to you. If you haven't, or if you hadn't been listening and you've been with us for a period of time, let me encourage you to listen and connect to this next thought. Our Bibles are full of exposition and exhortation. Now, there are narratives, there are stories. A big part of our Old Testament is narrative. Lots of our New Testament is made up of, after, Gospels would be narratives as well. Lots of the letters that are written to the various churches our mixture of exposition and exhortation. Exposition is basically saying, here's some true things. And exhortation is then saying, now here's how to respond to those true things. I don't know of another book in our New Testament that so beautifully lays it out. Paul does a really nice job of it. But the Hebrews preacher, man, he just one example after another, one section after another, where he exposes stuff and then just even with little words that give you a heads up, he says, here's how we're going to respond. Here's how you should respond. And we're right in the middle of a section that really lands with exhortation. And beautifully, starting in chapter 10, verse 19 and through 21, he sort of gives a little summary of the exposition. Now, the exposition has lasted from chapter 4, verse 14 all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. It is a massive section of exposition. So we've had like this pregnant moment or this pregnant feeling. Like we're waiting for the exhortation. Well, last week was our first taste of that. And this week will be our second taste of that. This 
finally tell us what we're supposed to do with this awesome thing, these awesome truths. So that's a little bit of a heads up for you. Exposition without exhortation, just saying, hey, here's a bunch of true stuff, is sort of academic and sort of lifeless. There's nothing wrong with academia. There's nothing wrong with true things, learning stuff. Man, that's great stuff. But exposition without exhortation is going to be, in the life of the church, it's just going to be sort of academic and can be lifeless. And the flip side of that, exhortation without exposition is just being bossy and loud. (laughs) Somebody just gets up here and just tells you to do a bunch of stuff, but they don't tell you why. It's like a parent saying, you know, here's what I want you to do. And the kid says, well, why? You say, because I said so. It's just, it'd be, now, I don't, some of you parents might, some of the el- kids are elbowing their parents saying, hey, you did that, Dad, just this morning. It's something about having a reason. And that's what our Hebrews preacher has done with exposition, beautifully executed, and then exhortation caught up together this morning. We're going to see them both. I'm going to begin in verse 19 of chapter 10, and we're going to unpack briefly verses 19 through 21 with two senses. I told you the Hebrews preacher just, I mean, he just serves it up. Here's the, here's a reminder of the exposition. And I'm going to give you a heads up with two words. Sense we use twice. S-I-N-C-E. Those are the heads up for reminder of what he's done in the last six and a half chapters. Let's look at those two senses. Therefore, brothers, therefore is another heads up. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Since his blood was so fine and so effective at doing what it was supposed to do, and since his flesh was torn, we're going to look at some responses. The sense is something that he wants us to have in view. It's something that we've exposed over the last four months. That's the first of two senses that has to do with Jesus being the way and that Jesus, that one Jesus-wide way being through his torn flesh. In many ways, he is the torn veil of the holiest of holies as he leads us into the very presence of God. He is our way in. The second sense is in verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's where we've been these last four months, really unpacking these things, that he he is a better high priest, he is of a better order, the order of Melchizedek. In him we have a better hope, he mediates a better covenant. The, The tent he serves in is the true one, not a shadow, so it's better. His is a better ministry. His blood is better. His salvation is better. His sacrifice is better. His work was and is so fine that it, in fact, purified what a million bulls and goats could not purify, the conscience of the worshiper. It was so effective. It did what no sacrifice could ever do. We don't have to hide in the garden bushes anymore. We don't have to make fig leaves to cover our sin. For our great high priest offered himself up, his body broken and torn, the perfect sacrifice offered for imperfect people, making for good standing with a now satisfied, holy God. Those are the two senses. 
And then there are three responses, three let us's. There's the words. He gives us a heads up. The first let us we considered last week, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Last week, we considered together the first of these three really beautiful, appropriate responses to these two senses. Three beautiful, appropriate responses to six and a half chapters worth of exposition. And that first was to draw near. And that drawing near is a corporate venture. That we are to draw near as part of a people with one true heart. We draw near. There is really, I don't want to discourage personal Bible study at all. Read your Bible personally. Absolutely. Have a personal quiet time, a personal prayer life. Man, please, by all means. But I want you to know that biblically, there's not a real strong development of personal worship. It's a misconception if you think that's what your primary worship is. Primarily, worship is done as part of a people. And here's a beautiful example of that. Let us, plural, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We enjoyed together last week that Christ, too, cleansed the unclean and the unworthy so that we could draw near. We considered not only... How he brought those back into the camp, who the lepers, those with a discharge, those that had touched a dead body. But he, in, in fact, he even raised the bar beyond that where he opened the veil to the blind and the blemished and the lame so that we can come into the very presence of God. It's not just a matter of hanging out in the camp. We can actually draw near with full assurance and confidence into the holiest of holies. That's what our high priest did for us. Man. And we considered, too, that the tense of that drawing near is present tense. It's not a one-time transaction, but a daily, weekly disposition for the true saint. We are continuing to draw near. Today we're going to consider the second and third exhortation. This is the meat of the message from this point on. The first is to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And the second is to consider how to stir one one another up to love and good deeds. He just lays it out there for us. We're going to consider those two things this morning. That's it. A two-point sermon. And I don't have a lot of satellites. In fact, really no satellites for you this morning. Other than Hebrews. We're going to make sense of Hebrews with Hebrews. Okay? Let's start with verse 23. We'll look at verse 23 by itself. And then we'll look at verse 24 and 25 together. The first let us, or this second let us of this passage, the first one we're dealing with this morning. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast here, just like draw near, is a present tense verb implying that in light of Christ's work, we should continue to hold fast. Holding fast isn't a one-time deal, but is a continuing disposition of the true child of God. I want you to hear that. Drawing near is a present tense response to Christ as high priest. And holding fast is a present tense response to Christ as high priest. The true child of God is gripping present tense. 
gripping something. Keep your finger in Hebrews 10 and look over at a couple of passages that if you were on this journey with us for a period of time here, these will be familiar. Look over at chapter 3, verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. You could say his household. We are of his household if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. There it is right there, present tense. You see it? It's not a one-time transaction. It is a disposition of a true saint. We are holding fast. Look across the page in my Bible, in chapter 3, verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I want you all to hear this passage. I, I want you to hear what's being communicated in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. And I, what I want you to hear is being communicated in chapter 3, verse 6, and chapter 3, verse 14, is that the mindset of salvation being a transaction where you basically purchase an insurance policy and you get square with God at this moment in time and it's a done deal is not in keeping with our Bibles. Now, what I want you to hear is that salvation begins at a point in time. But those who are truly his, according to our Bibles, are holding fast. Holding fast. Does that make them saved? No, it doesn't. It's just characteristic of those who are being saved. It's a massive difference. Those who are being saved are holding fast. There is an argument, and I don't mean an argument in an ugly sense. I mean an argument is in a dialogue going on between folks, and it probably has been going on for 2,000 years. For me in my life, it's been going on since we've been here the last 10 years in Greenville, especially since we've moved through John chapter 6 and moved in the direction of trusting God in salvation through and through and entrusting that he does the work through and through. A conversation that's begun to try and figure out how is this salvation thing working. We're in a context that believes in large part that it is an event. And as I shared last week, we've been hyper-revivaled to the point where people can actually believe that they can exist square with their God in isolation, alone, apart from the church. Who needs it? I had a moment. I remember my baptism. I've got a little signature in the front of my Bible where the pastor signed it. So we're square. And anything you want to add to that conversation is now just being religious. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard that conversation? If you're reading Facebook, if you're reading current communications with people, other people that are Christians, you've probably heard that message. If you talk about anything after salvation, then you're just being religious, and that's a heavy yoke. And that's not, that's, that's doing damage to grace. And what I'll tell you, I want to tell you right now that that is just a big bunch of baloney. I, I got other thoughts in there in my head, but I'm going to say big bunch of baloney. It's not in keeping with our Bibles. Now, 
what I've wrestled hard with. Uh, <laughs> when you mention somebody like Joel Osteen, it's easy because none of you know Joel. You can trust that I can mention Joel Osteen and mention Joel Osteen's message without it being personal. I think I don't, you don't need to nod your head, but I hope you're seeing that I can mention Joel Osteen's message without it being personal. I want to hope that in these next couple of minutes that I can mention Bart Millard's name without it being personal. Is it even possible? Because so many of us know him. This is Bart Millard's message right now, this grace-emphasized thing that if you even talk about how do you respond to that salvation, then somehow you're doing damage to grace, and I'll have no use for that, according to Bart. I'm done with religion. I want you to hear me, people of God, and those of you that are close to Bart. I love Bart Millard and his family. I don't love his message right now. It's not a product of this church. And it's not a product of him walking with his church. And in fact, it has happened since it was a big part of him walking away from this church. As we move through Hebrews, he didn't like these sort of thoughts. That those who are truly saved are engaging something. Because it sounded like it was doing damage to grace. Bart and I had a number of conversations about this, and I hope that we continue, we will continue to have those conversations. He's not here anymore, and he's not calling me on the phone to say, hey, what do you think? But I know that y'all are being connected to that message, and if, you're, if it's not Bart, he's just a poster boy for a message that's out there that says if you talk about anything having to do with how you respond to the gospel, then you're putting a heavy yoke on people. And I'm saying, you're not reading your Bible you're cherry-picking some verses, and you're not reading them contextually and dealing with passage after passage that does say, yes, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul encouraged the Thessalonians twice, live in a manner that pleases our Father. Judicially, absolutely, he is pleased with us the moment we confess Christ as our Savior and Lord, just like some of you did the moment you adopted your child. Man, they're yours, right? Done deal. But there are some times where they may dishonor you and disobey you, where you may be momentarily displeased, and we need to reckon with that. Man, I want to encourage you, listen to the message that you're agreeing with and make sure that you agree with it and then test it with this right here and go, is this what this says? Man, we are to be no respecter of persons when it comes to the truth. I want to encourage you in that. Paul said, if anybody shows up here and preaches another message, if a bunch of angels show up and preach a message different than what I preach to you, then you dismiss it. Man, I want to encourage you. Test these messages. Test these things you hear. Man, grace is a beautiful part of the gospel story, and it's part of the gospel story. And if it's only grace, grace is only understood in context. And if all your message is grace, 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 it's imbalanced, and it becomes imbalanced to the point where it can actually be false. It doesn't matter what you do after you trust Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not a wash at that point. Because the picture in our Bibles is that holding fast is ongoing. All three of these let us's are part and parcel to trusting Christ. Let us draw near. That's what, 
That's what Christian folk do. I'm not putting a heavy yoke around your neck to encourage you to do that and continue to do that. That's what he's doing here. To hold fast, that's not putting a heavy yoke around you to say continue to hold fast to Christ. Be true to him that it does matter whether you're walking with him or not. That's not a heavy yoke. It's a burden that you do the same thing that the Hebrews preacher is encouraging the Hebrews church to do. In light of Christ as high priest, respond with every single thing that you have. Respond with all that you are. Because it's what God's people do. Now, this message, this question of once saved, always saved is really where this conversation goes oftentimes. And the question that I would have is, what do you mean by saved? Because there are lots of folks that have been baptized that are not saved. I don't mean lots. Potentially. Being saved and being baptized are not synonymous. Man, John wrote in 1 John, they went out from us because they were never truly of us. Paul had plenty of people bail on the ministry and bail on Christ. It happens. If you've been walking with the church any period of time, it happens. Do you have space for that? Do you see how that person quit continuing? How that person quit holding fast? How that person quit drawing near and they went their own way? Man, the once saved, always saved is a question that's really not even asked of our, of our New Testament writers. They're not asking that question. It's a weird question. It's sort of like asking a scientific question of a work of Beethoven. Or asking a scientific question of a Rembrandt. What? It doesn't, it's like mixing genres. It doesn't even fit. It's a weird question that really has nothing to do with what it means to surrender everything once you put your hand to the plow, to never turn back, to follow Christ with everything that you have, to offer your lives as a living sacrifice. It's not in keeping with our Bibles. It's a weird question. And you need to have your ears open to that. You need to have your radar up and be attentive to that. Our Bible is full of these present tense verbs that Christian folk do. (laughs) And it's full of sermon after sermon where preacher after preacher is calling the church to go, then, do, and be. Man, don't let anybody bewitch you. Don't let anybody bewitch you and lead you to think that how you live doesn't matter. That how you respond to the gospel doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. He dedicated six and a half chapters to exposition and then dedicates this beautiful execution of three appropriate responses that church folk do. It's what we do. And holding fast, man, that's the second of those three, and it's a beauty. And here's the cool thing. We're holding fast to the confession of our hope. In Hebrews, hope is not a feeling. I have some friends that have a personal trainer. I don't have a personal trainer. I couldn't afford a personal trainer. But I have some friends that, who can afford a personal trainer. They have a personal trainer. They're not here, in case you're wondering, well, who is this? They don't live here in Greenville. <laughs> I don't know if anybody in Greenville has a personal trainer, although some of you might. That's cool. Go for it. <laughs> some of you might be one. I, sorry. But these friends have a personal trainer, and the, this personal trainer tells them anytime it's hurting, like they like gives them something to do that's like really painful. He says, ah, pain is just a feeling. It's just a feeling. <laughs> now let me tell you something hope is not just a feeling 
He's not talking about hope in Hebrews as something that you just have to hold fast to this warm, fuzzy feeling. Some of you may think back at your story when you were earlier when you were a Christian, when you had that warm, fuzzy feeling, and you're like, man, I love this thing. I would go, go you know, to the far corners of the field. I'd do whatever. Man, I'd, I'd take on people and, you know, with the gospel. Man, I was bold because of that warm, fuzzy feeling. That's not, we're not talking about a feeling. The hope in Hebrews is tangible truth. Something that you can grip. Something you can put your hands around. His second draw near that he's encouraging the church with, or this second let us that he's encouraging the church with, holding fast is holding fast not to a feeling, thankfully, because I can't hold to a feeling for more than 30 seconds. It's holding fast to what Christ has done as the high priest. Let me show you this. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. This is some good stuff right here. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, let's hold fast our confession. It sounds almost identical to over there in chapter 10. It's the same message. This message is throughout Hebrews. If you don't like the notion of holding on to something in a present tense, if that is hard for you to to deal with salvation-wise, you're going to have a really difficult time with this book because that's the message of this book. Continue. And here it is. The impetus for continuing and holding fast is not so you won't go to hell. I want you to hear that. It's not. Hey, you want to hold fast to God's people. You want to draw near with God's people. You want to hold fast to the confession of your hope so you won't go to hell. (laughs) In fact, the impetus here for holding fast is because Christ is who he is and what he's done. That's what he says to grip. Don't grip some sort of insurance policy. Grip who Christ is. That's where your confidence comes from. I want you to see that. That's so important. It's like the difference between someone saying, okay, I'm going to start a healthy diet and exercise regimen. And I'm going to do that so I don't die early. Now, some of you might be thinking that. It's just hard for me to think because that's so far away. It's just so protracted. I mean, it's so disconnected from what I'm doing right now. I can't even really connect that. And that's the way I think it is. I want to... I want to to continue to hold fast so I don't go to hell. It's just protracted. It's no connection to it. It doesn't have purchase for here and now. It's not a living connection. On the other hand, if I say I want to adopt a healthy regimen of diet and exercise so that I can enjoy a vibrant, healthy life today, that's a better connection to what's being said right here. We're holding fast to Christ, not so we won't go to hell, We're holding fast to Christ because he is a living, seated, victorious Lord right now. And we can enjoy him and have a relationship with him right now. That's why we want to hold fast. That's why we want to draw near. Man, I like that impetus a whole lot better than holding fast so I won't go to the bad place. That's so disconnected. Look at this next one. Chapter 6, verse 17 through 20. This is a beauty. Look at 17 and 18 first. We're talking about holding fast. 
Keep that in view. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, those two unchangeable things being himself and the oath, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us and it's found in the next two verses. It's not so you won't go to the bad place. It's not so you'll have a happy, beautiful, wonderful life now. (laughs) Your best life now. That's not the reason to hold fast. We hold fast because what it says next. We have this, this thing to grip that's worth holding fast to as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner for our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's worth holding on to. That's worth being confident in. That's worth gripping. He's worth holding fast to. We've had four months of What's worth gripping? Do you know that? It's so easy to look at the last four months where we've looked at Christ as high priest and say, man, that's sort of been kind of an interesting kind of an academic kind of thing. If you don't connect it to this, then yeah, it's kind of academic. But if you connect it to some appropriate responses that it, that's what you hold on to, then that's called worship. And that's called, I'm going to call that robust worship. And I'm going to call that robust worship that's going to be like an anchor for you as you experience the storms of life. Man, that's an anchor worth holding on to right there. <laughs> that's a hope worth holding on to because that hope penetrated behind the veil. It's sunk in the throne. And now I'm connected to it through faith. That's where I find my assurance. That's where I find my confidence. And that's what I want to hold fast to. Man. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Let's finish out this second hold or this second let us. There's a little qualifier at the end. The holding fast, you're encouraged to hold fast. The confession of our hope, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I want you to consider for a moment who or what is the object of your confidence. Are you? If you are, I want to promise you and tell you right now, you, you, you're in for a roller coaster of a ride in faith. Because you're going to fumble. You might have a good day. You might have a day where you live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And you might have another day where you really, you know, fumble it, fail. I want to encourage you not to put your confidence in your confidence or your faith in your faith. I want to encourage you to have your confidence squarely placed on Christ. Hebrews 12 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's not fix your eyes on yourself. And that's what some people think when when talking about these sort of things that you're getting religious. Because you're now putting a heavy yoke around people where they're going to be so focused on their performance. That's not what I'm encouraging. In fact, I'm discouraging that. I'm encouraging you to focus on his performance. And that's going to affect yours. I learned to drive in central Louisiana. I took driver's ed in 1983, I think, 82 or 83, probably 82. 
And we have a bridge in central Louisiana right there in Alexandria. That I, it's not there anymore. It was called the Huey P. Long Bridge. If you know the story of Huey P. Long and some Louisiana history, you know there's, a, there's some storyline story there. The Huey P. Long Bridge was built for Model T's and Model A's, which are really narrow. If Maybe if one of your grandpa has one of those, you know, drives it in the, the July 4th parade, you know, you know, it's a narrow little joker. Well, I wasn't learning to drive in a Model T. I mean, it's 1980-something, so you may be familiar with the cars that were around in 1980. Well, I didn't get the, 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 the newest model in 1982 or 3. I think I was driving a late 1970s Buick, one of those two-door jokers. The, the, the door that you open that you better have like an entire empty space next to you to open it. That thing shut. And that Buick was wide. I mean, it was like two Model T's wide. Well, my driving instructor, you know, they had, I don't know if they still have this. They had the, he had the pedals on the floor. He didn't have a steering wheel, which, I, you know, that'd be pretty cool. You could just take over completely. But all he had was a pedal, so he could just stop you. He had a brake pedal over there. We're in this big Buick. And he says, all right, I want you to go across Huey P. Long Bridge. And I'm like, oh, my goodness gracious, I can't do that. And I plowed off across Huey P. Long Bridge. And I'm focused on this side on the yellow line. And I'm focused on this side on the, the side of the bridge, the, the rails there. And when I'm focused on the yellow line or I'm focused on the side rails, I'm all over the place. And I'm looking up and I'm looking at cars coming. I'm, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go over the yellow line. I'm going to hit that car. Oh, I'm going to hit the rail. And he said, you know what you need to do? You need to focus on the far side of the bridge. Focus on where you're going and focus on a, a, a static object out there. And don't be overly focused. Be conscious of where you are. But don't be so overly focused on it that you're hitting the rails or that you're over the yellow line. And man, when I did that, I looked up and it just leveled out. That boat, that Buick, just leveled out. And I crossed Huey P. Long Bridge. I couldn't believe it. And from that point on, man, Huey P. Long Bridge was nothing. Because I fixed my eyes on something that's worth fixing my eyes on. Conscious of where I was? Absolutely. And that's the encouragement here. Without wavering, focus on one who will never waver. Without wavering, focus on something that's static. Though you will waver at times, he never will. Though you'll be faithless at times, he will remain and is faithless. Our hope is based on his faithfulness, not on ours. I encourage you to look on the other side of that bridge at Christ, mindful of where you are, but with your eyes fixed on him as a destination. And lastly, in regards to this second let us, the first one we're considering today, drawing near, as drawing near is plural, so is holding fast, plural. As in, it's not something that you do by yourself. Again, man, I'm all for personal worship. Knock yourself out. I, I read personally. I pray personally. But you know where the real cream is, where the real goods are? It's in drawing near with the people, and it's in holding fast with the people. Because when you're holding fast with the people, two are better than one. When you fall down, there's somebody else there to pick you up. I encourage you in that. You can't hope to do it by yourself. Holding fast is a corporate venture. And you hold fast with the church. That's who this letter is written to, the church. Not just Christian folk that just hang out together. 
are Christian folk on Facebook. You hold fast with the church. Now, let's look at verse 24 and 25. At the last let us of this passage. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of my commentators nicely handled a, a, a translation. Oftentimes a commentator will do his own translation there. And it's just, it, it might be clumsy, but it connects to some things that are being said there. Listen to his translation of this first part of this passage, verse 24. Let us keep on caring for one another for the stimulation of love and good works. Let us keep on, brings out the tense, caring for one another for the stimulation of love and good works. I'm going to deal with this individually, break this down a little bit, but big picture, in light of Christ's work as high priest, in light of what we're gripping that's worth gripping, believers should appropriately exhibit practical concern for one another. Now, you might say practical. You emphasize that word. That's not here. I don't see practical. It actually is here. Love and good works. See, love is not just a feeling. It's not just a feeling. Love, if true, has something going on there with it. It has some activities. It has some acts that express that love. Tell your wife that you love her, but you don't show it in any way. She's going to begin to wonder if you even understand it. Because love works. And that's the encouragement here. In light of what Christ did for us in Christ, or, or what in the cross, the ultimate act of love, then let us then go encourage one another, stir one another up to love and good works. It's not an emotion, but love has feet, it has a mouth, it has hands, it has a kitchen, it has a strong back, it has time. It might show up in the form of a check where you had a need that you didn't even know that anybody knew about. And all of a sudden, someone blesses you with a check. The Holy Spirit put it on their heart or the Holy Spirit put it on a deacon's heart. And someone tended to you. That's love and good works. It might show up in the form of a phone call where you call somebody and say, Hey, man, I was just thinking about you today. How can I pray for you? That's love and practical connections, good works. If you just think about folks and you never reach out to them, do you really love them? Not according to this. Because love works. Maybe it's an email. Maybe it's a meal. Maybe some of you know that know of a family that's struggling that needs a meal. Or a mom that's just trying to keep it in the middle of the road and you can bless them by bringing them a meal. That's love and good works and it's appropriate response to Christ as high priest. What a beautiful connection. When you do that, that's called worship. It might be an arm or a shoulder. Last week, little small things for me minister to me and communicate love to me. I've just gotten to know Corey and Valerie, and introducing Corey up here, if y'all were here last week, it was one of the sweetest gestures that I've, I've had in a long time, where I'm introducing Corey, and I'm like, okay, I want you guys to meet Corey, and Corey reaches over and puts his arm around me. I'm not a real touchy-feely guy, but that blessed me. You know, I don't even like to hug people, but that totally blessed me. 
it communicated to a guy we're just starting to get to know. <laughs> He's back there, yeah. It communicated love. Jerry Morris is the king of hugs. He hugged me after I baptized him. I was like this, and, and he's soaking wet, and he's hugging me. You know, it's awkward, but it's love, man. Good works. I'm not going to say I love that, but I'm thankful for it. <laughs> or it might be a chainsaw borrowed. Ken Rodden loaned me a chainsaw just a couple weeks ago where I could get something done. Or maybe it's a chainsaw employed after the ice apocalypse earlier this year. I, Christy and I were out tending. We had folks at hospitals everywhere in Dallas. We had multiple things going on. Christy and I ventured off into Dallas to go check on some folks. And we come back, and there's a crowd of guys in our front yard with dueling chainsaws. I mean, there's sawdust flying everywhere, dirty, manly dudes cutting down a tree that fell in our front yard. Loving good works, man, right there. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. If that is a heavy yoke for you, then man, you're missing it. That's not a heavy yoke. That's a treat. That's a blessing that because of what Christ has done for you, you get to go love on somebody with some practical ways. Please don't think of that as a heavy yoke. That's an appropriate response to the gospel. It's what Christian folk do. It's what we do. And there's three really sweet verbs that are in this passage. I want to show you these three verbs because they take us through the rest of our time together this morning. The first is consider. The verb there is present tense. Let us continue to consider. Let us keep on caring. Let us keep on caring is how that commentator phrased it. That involves time, planning, and thought that goes into the next verb. Let us, in response to what Christ has done for us as high priest and as sacrifice... Let us keep on considering, the next verb, how to stir one another up, how to stimulate, that's what that word means, how to stimulate one another. And actually what the word means at face value, it means provoke. Let us figure out, let's contemplate, let's think about, let's give two-second thought to how we can encourage one another to stimulate each other to love and good works or to provoke one another. This word is used only two other places. Well, it's used one other place in our Bible and a, a, a cognate or a related word is used another place. One place where it's used verbatim is in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, dealing with the sharp contention between Paul and Barnabas. If that gives you some sense, now it's used in a negative sense there. That they were provoking each other, apparently. They were hot. But it lost, at least give you some sense of how, how invasive and how involved that word is. Stir one another up is not, hey, man, let me just kind of like beat around the bush with you. It's like, man, let me be pretty pointed here. Let me encourage you. Let me stir you up. Let me provoke you to love and good works. The other place it's used or the cognate is in 1 Corinthians 14, 5 in the love passage. Love is not provoked. It's used there in the negative sense. But here it's used in the positive sense, in the sense of stirring each other up 
to love and to do good things for folks. <laughs> you want a lob? That's a lob. <laughs> is that something you can do? Sure it is. If it's not, then you're a cold-hearted cat. You too busy for that? Because of what Christ has done for you, can you think about that? Now, let me if, confess this. As I'm thinking about this, I ask myself a question. I, I said, Ben. Let me say, Ben, my, my, myself. Let me ask myself a question. Am I discouraged that I'm finding out here that I need to be stirred up and provoked to love and good works? Am I discouraged to find out that I need that? Honestly, I was just for a minute. Because then I'm like, yeah, I know myself. <laughs> I kind of get doing my own thing. You know, I mean, like, I, I, don't, I don't have the wind to my back when it comes to loving on other folks. I'm confessing to you. That may be a, a discouragement to you. It's actually an encouragement to me as I connect to the reality that it shouldn't be a discouragement, but it should actually be an encouragement that you're not a royal dirtbag when you're failing to love others and do good works all the time with the wind to your back. But you're actually like the rest of the Hebrews church. You just need to be reminded. You just need to be stirred up. So I'm not a dirtbag after all. <laughs> oh, I just need to be stirred up by you. I need to be stirred up by you to love and good works. And you need to be stirred up by me to love and good works. I need to be provoked at times to love and good works because I get selfish. And I start thinking about numero uno. And I can think of a million reasons not to give somebody some time or some chainsaw or some meal or insert all those things we just illustrated. Man, you don't have to work hard to find reasons to not help folks and not love on folks. I'm not discouraged after all because in term, it, it actually turns out I'm like the Hebrews church who apparently had been really good at this at one time but at this point needed to be encouraged that in response to the gospel stir one another up to love and good deeds. If I'm honest with myself, folks, I need provoking sometimes. And this passage encourages me to realize that I can receive it without insult. That's key. Receive it without insult. Am I going to take it as an insult? If you're like, hey, Ben, man, I've noticed you've kind of been selfish lately and aren't really giving people time. I'm seeing sort of a, a void of love and good works. What's going on there? I don't need to take offense to it because I'm in league with the Hebrews church. I just need to be stirred up. Nor should you take offense to it. If a, a shepherd of a family reminds someone in, in a family, if a wife reminds her husband. Don't be offended, husband. We need this. If a small group in, reminds their small group, let me stir you up in this right now. Don't be offended. We need it. If a deacon reminds you, or if a deacon reminds another deacon, we need provoking at times because we move into, it's all about me. And we need to be provoked out of it. Now, not neglecting to meet together, that next phrase, as some are in the habit of doing. Apparently, this is a 2,000-year-old problem. There is, in fact, nothing new under the sun. The word here, habit, suggests indifference or apathy about meeting together 2,000 years ago. In some ways, I'm a little bit encouraged 
In 10 years, I've experienced that. In 10 years, I've experienced folks that have sort of moved that direction. It's not necessarily an indictment against me. It's not necessarily an indictment against the ministry. It's characteristic of the people of God that some get in the habit of just whatever. Why do I need to go gather corporately? It's a bother. It's a chore. I might hear something that I don't like. Or somebody might say something or not say something I don't like. There's a million reasons not to. I found a, a, a little excerpt from a guy named Adolf von Harnack. He's a theologian, a German theologian in the early 1900s. He, he wrote this. He's trying to get at why folks may have neglected corporate gatherings. He said, At first and indeed, always there were naturally some people who imagined that one could secure the holy contents and blessings of Christianity as one did those of Isis and then withdraw. Like, you just go get the goods, and they're like, oh, I got the goods. I guess that, that was, I don't know anything about ISIS, but apparently that's the way it was with ISIS. You just go get your blessing, and then you're out, and you got it. It sounds like most of Greenville. Honestly, it sounds like most of Greenville. Scott and I knocked on nearly every single door south of I-30 the first couple of years we were here. And that's what we heard time and time again. Oh, I've got the goods. I don't need that. I don't need the church. ISIS hooked me up, and I'm out. I got it. He continues. Or in cases where people were not so short-sighted, levity, laziness, or weariness were often enough to detach a person from the society. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. People were lazy then, too. Or levity. It's just, I'm just, it's just fun or not to. It's funner to not go to church. Man, seriously. It's heavy. It's so sober. We pray for people that got stung by bees and stuff. Yeah, man. Sorry to beat everybody down. Praying for one another. But yeah, man, the Satan, he's always at work. I had a friend growing up that his dad always said, man, the devil, he sure is busy. He has your number, and he will poke your number, he will dial your number in, and he'll give you a million reasons. Why don't bother with those old serious, sober people? Let's have fun. Let's watch a ball game or something. Let's give a million reasons. He goes on. A vainglorious sense of superiority might be a reason. And being able to dispense with the spiritual aid of the society. Man, that's a big one. Who needs church, man? I got a Bible. I got a Bible. I don't need those people. I don't need a preacher. I don't need the gifts given to the church and the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher. I don't need that stuff. I got all I need, so I'm going to dispense with the spiritual aid of the society. He says, this was also the means of inducing many to withdraw from fellowship and from the common worship. Many, too, were actuated by fear of the authorities. They shunned attendance at public worship to avoid being recognized as Christians. That last one may be a, a real possibility. Or maybe it's just they're tuckered. They're tuckered waiting on Jesus to come back. The early church had to come with grip, come to grips with the reality that Jesus wasn't coming back in their generation. Or that their generation's dying off and he hadn't come back yet. They're taking him at his word that I'm going to come back soon. And they're saying these are the last days. And they're like, man, where is he? How come he hadn't come back? Something that the church has had to learn for 2,000 years is last days means the, the, the time between the first advent and the second, period. The time being near is now. 
You may not see his return. And you too may get tuckered, not realizing that you, if he doesn't come back in your lifetime, are carrying the torch so that those little ones next to you will be ready when he comes back. Or so they'll carry the torch so that your grandchildren will be ready when he comes back. You see how important your role is? Even if he doesn't come back in your lifetime. We can't grow weary. We can't grow tuckered. Man, we need to be ready all the more as that time is drawing near. Your children and grandchildren may remember your faithfulness to draw near, hold fast, and consider without wavering. Listen to Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Written 2,000 years ago. The time is near. Here's the reality for you in 2014. Every Christian generation is called to live as if we're the last one before he returns. Yeah, we're sober. Yes, we're going to stir one another up to love and good deeds because there's too much at stake. Too much at stake not to. No, we're not respecters of persons when it comes to truth because there's too much at stake. We're carrying an important torch. And we better be faithful to it. Because Satan's got our number if we're not attentive. I found an early writing that sadly captured. This is the only real evidence we have for why they were neglecting worship early. You know, this Adolf von Harnack, he was just, you know, surmising. Maybe here are the possibilities. The only real evidence we have is from some second century writings in Rome suggesting the sad reality behind the neglect for gatherings was simply and sadly, I'm going to say it again, preoccupation with business affairs. There's nothing new under the sun. And 2,000 years ago, there apparently were legion reasons, myriad reasons. And in this case, having to do with business. I got stuff to do, man. I got to provide. I got to do this at work. I got to do that at work. Man, I want to encourage you. If you have to take off for one reason or another, or you're traveling for business, or you have some sort of little unique season, let it be a unique season and let others in your life hold you accountable in that. Because, man, Satan is busy, remember? He sure is busy. And he's got your number. And one week without a meal, you get hungry. Two weeks without a meal, you can, you can, you can get duped. Three weeks without a meal, you can be bewitched. Four weeks without a meal, you can land anywhere. Man, I encourage you, don't don't let him do that. Be okay with missing for good reasons, but make them rare. Make them rare. Don't neglect it as some are in the habit of doing, apparently, for 2,000 years. Whatever their reason for missing, it was a dire situation. For apart from regular gatherings, listen to this. There could be no mutual encouragement. Some of you that think that that it's okay to not engage regularly, consistently, in a meaningful way, you may feel like you don't need any encouragement from anybody, but someone might need some from you. How are you going to do that if you're not there? I mean, that's just a real tangible, real practical question. How are you going to do that if you're not there? There's no mutual encouragement if you're not part of regular gatherings. There's no provoking. There's no stirring each other up. 
There's no good works to receive and none to offer. There's no hearing of the priest's word. There's no worship in song. I mean, you can sing while you're driving down the road, but you're not singing with God's people. Lifting up an offering together. There's no fellowship. And where would this all lead eventually without all those things? They're going to lead, according to the Hebrews preacher, according to a lot of our Bibles, to no real faith. Period. Spiritual death. What this passage is telling us here, this last let us especially, is that I put in my notes, you may be the means God uses to keep me in the faith, and I changed it. According to this passage, you are the means that God uses to keep me in the faith. You are. Man, does that add a note of sobriety to this journey that we have together? These let us's of how important they are? Man, I'm thankful I'm not going to be bound for hell if you fell in your let us, you know, and stirring me another up. I'm not, God's not so small that my outcome is dependent on you. But God is so big that he's designed and so loving that he's designed it to where our journeys are dependent on each other's involvement in our lives. He's made this worship thing a corporate experience. You are the means that God uses to keep me in the faith and likewise. So consider how you provoke or consider and provoke. And then the third verb, encouraging one another all the more every day as we get closer to his return. Encouraging one another. Man, that takes work. If you don't have the wind, some of you have the wind to your back in that because you have the gift of encouragement. Some of you don't. You're like, I have to work at that. Work at it. It's worthwhile work. It's part of the third let us. Encourage one another as the day draws near. Now, turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to have our supper together from this passage in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read this passage before we distribute the elements because I want, I want you to be mindful of something as the elements are distributed. I want you to be ready to take those elements. Let me put it to you that way. I don't want you to pass on them. The only way I'd want you to pass on them is if you're sitting there unrepentant and you're like, hey, I, I see the senses since we can enter through the veil, since Christ is the perfect high priest, and I see the let us's, but I'm really not going to do them, and I'm really not going to make a heavy or a work at them, an effort at them, because it just sounds kind of like heavy yoke of religion. Then don't, don't take the supper. It can make you sick. I mean, you can see it from the passage I'm about to read. But if, on the other hand, you were part of this four-month journey... And seeing Christ as high priest. If on the other hand you're seeing the senses. Since he opened for us a way into the holiest of holies. Through his, through his body. The torn flesh of his body. And since he, we have a perfect and great high priest over the house of God. If you're seeing those three senses. And you're seeing the let us's. And you're like you know what. Man I'm deficient in some of those. 
I want to work on some of those. You're in good company if you feel like you're deficient in some of those. Hopefully there's not a person in the room here that's looking at those three saying, uh, psh, got that, got that, got that. <laughs> a plus is down the board, man. Psh, I got all three of those, man. Psh, what's up? Hopefully it's a room full of people that are taking stock and looking at these let us's going, man, I needed to be reminded that we together draw near. I needed to be reminded that we together hold fast and what that means. And I needed to be reminded that an appropriate response to the gospel is to consider how we can stir one another up to love and good works. If any of you are sitting here saying, okay, man, I've got to work on some of those things. And by his grace and by his mercy and by the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, I'm going to endeavor to do that. Not as a heavy yoke of religion, but in response to what's been done for me. Then, boy, you take and eat. Take and eat heartily. And I'm going to take it with you because I need it. It's our sustenance. It's our nourishment. As we as families then go hope and respond, hope that we can respond to this thing appropriately. Uh, Beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. May we have enjoyed some new covenant realities. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We do it every single week together. Somebody asked me just last week, is there a place for Lord's Supper, for people to participate in the Lord's Supper apart from the church? I'm like, no, that's, that's what God's people do together. Some folks just hanging out at their house, having the Lord's Supper together apart from the church. That's what the church does. This letter is written to the church. Not written to some some Christians hanging out at Starbucks. I'm not talking about a building either. It could be in someone's home, a legitimate church. Don't let your paradigms overtake you there. There could be a legitimate church that's enjoying the gospel through the supper every single week. Now, in verse 27, listen to this. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread... You could have a church at Starbucks, too, I guess. You could. Now, that'd be weird. Busting out song and baptism and ordinances and stuff at Starbucks. But I guess you could. You know, don't anybody get stuck on that. Listen where we're going. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I'm going to tell you right now. Based on these last four months that we've spent together and how we spent last Sunday and this Sunday in the let us's, if you're looking at those let us's and you're like, nah, I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to respond to that. Then you would be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Don't take this supper. Because it's going to be a mess for you. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examined. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have croaked. Man, yeah, we're sober. You bet we're sober. You bet we're sober about what we're talking about right here. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, A few things for you to 
think about as we take this supper, as it's distributed. If you're with me, you're like, oh man, I needed to hear those three let us's. By your grace and your mercy, Lord, work those in me. Grow those in me. That's a better prayer because you will never arrive. Grow those in me in response. Grow those in us. Grow those in the McGraws. Grow those in our small groups. Take stock of what you're gripping as you're ready for the supper. That's the first thing. Take stock of what you're gripping. Are you gripping an experience? Man, lots of people have had experiences and have no use for Christ or his people. Are you gripping your baptism? Are you gripping the church? Don't even grip the church. Man, grip Christ, period. He's the only grippable. The church is just the people that are gripping him together. Don't grip your relationships. Don't grip your marriage. Don't grip your family. Don't grip any of those things. The only thing worth gripping is Christ. So take stock of what you're gripping. Are you gripping Christ? What's your incentive for holding fast so you don't go to the bad place? Or is your incentive for holding fast because he's worth holding fast to because he's just that fine and just that perfect and just that awesome? Are you considering one another... And further, are you provoking one another to love and good deeds? Take stock of that as we take supper together. And are you encouraging one another as the day draws near? I'm going to pray and then we're going to distribute the elements. God, I am so thankful for how we've spent these last few minutes and these last few months. I'm so thankful that we have a Bible that is just full of truth I'm so thankful that these last few months we have spent together time grabbing something that's worth grabbing. I'm thankful that our hope is not, that we are not to have some sort of confidence and hold fast to a feeling, but we are holding fast to realities, accomplishments. We're holding fast to a Savior who defeated death and is reigning and ruling at your side right now, placing all things in subjection under his feet. God, I'm thankful that we get to take and sup together. I'm thankful that we get to soberly take stock in what we're holding on to, what we're trusting in, what we've placed our faith in. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes, how we spend these next few minutes, I pray for fidelity. I pray for blamelessness. I pray for wholeheartedness as we feast together. I'm so thankful for these last few months and thankful for last week and this week, these beautiful, beautiful responses. I pray with our church family, you would work these in us for your own glory. Grow these in us. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup.
What are you gripping? What is your confidence? Faith in your faith is a roller coaster. Gracious sakes alive. What are your eyes fixed on? Is it your porn, is it a yellow line or the rails? Is it a fine high priest? What's your incentive for holding fast so you don't go to the bad place? Or because he's worth enjoying right now? Are you considering one another? Just considering one another. And are you considering one another to the point where you can figure out, how can I stir up my brother or my sister, my husband, my wife, my children, my friend, my neighbor, my fellow elder, my deacons, to love and good deeds? And are you encouraging one another? What are you encouraging each other with? This is what we encourage each other with, what Christ has done. Man, he's the victor. Let's take and eat together. Let's take and drink. Let's continue in song. Well, year 10, um, I guess would be time enough to, appropriate time to call out somebody uh, that we all know. I know it's awkward awkward to call out somebody's name in a corporate setting and not approving that we all know or a lot of you know a lot of you I mean some of you grew up with I wrestled with that I'm gonna tell you I wrestled hard with that I called Brad this morning I said bro talk me off the ledge I talked to Scott and I was trying to figure out 800 ways not to do that this morning but the thing is it's right here it's a, it's a living parable right in front of us. Bart sat and his family sat right on this front row when we were earlier in Hebrews, Hebrews 3. And he nearly came unglued up here because he couldn't handle the thought. He and I had a number of conversations about it. You need to know that there are lots of folks out there that I trust love the Lord. There's no doubt in my mind that Bart loves the Lord. But I have tremendous doubt about his message. It's imbalanced. It's imbalanced. I stand on different people's shoulders, and I don't know whose shoulders Bart's standing on right now. Some of you are friends. Man, it doesn't mean that I, wanted to, I don't want to discourage you from being a friend, but it's have you have opportunity? Say, man, let's look in our Bibles together. Let's go to Hebrews. That's a great, have you been equipped for that? Some of you may have been equipped these last few weeks to talk with somebody you work with. Bart may just be an example. Somebody you work with, it might be a family member that's thinking that they don't need to walk with the people because they have made a decision, some sort of transaction. And you've been equipped not only for worship yourself and for your family, but you've been equipped to engage with truth. That's what we are, is ambassadors of truth. And you can speak the truth in love. The problem is at times it doesn't feel loving. You think Jesus came off as loving all the time? Ask John to be how he did with that whole program scathing times man peace is not the absence of conflict I thought of the irony of us singing about Christian peace after me mentioning Bart and I was like oh man because Christian peace everything in us says ah Christian peace doesn't confront 
Peace is found on the other side of conflict. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is working through conflict well with truth being the guide. And having room to differ in areas that are worth differing. Different beliefs in the same faith. There's absolutely room for that. This is not a different beliefs in the same faith issue. When all your gospel has is grace, you've missed out on the justice and the holiness of God and appropriate response to the gospel. It's an imbalanced gospel. And it can come off as do whatever in the world you want to do because you're covered in grace. And that's not a good message. Bart's not a scholar. He's a tremendous singer, but he's not a scholar. I want to share a little writing with you before, we, before I dismiss you. A guy named Jonathan Edwards wrote a book in the 1700s in response to the Great Awakening and pastoring for a number of years after the Great Awakening in the New England area. Jonathan Edwards, one of the most difficult reads I've ever worked through, but this guy, what a tremendous grasp on the Scripture. He was a scholar. He was a theologian. And he was a pastor, and he was a preacher. Some of you may be familiar with the, the, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You know about those sermons and the context for those sermons. People are falling out in the aisles just trying to figure out how they can get saved. I mean, thousands and thousands of people had an experience in the Great Awakening. Thousands and thousands of people. Jonathan Edwards had the unique Challenge, privilege, responsibility, I don't know what it would be, probably different in every person's case, of then pastoring a big chunk of those people, those newly converted people. And this book is a product of pastoring them for seven or eight years. It's called The Religious Affections. And through it, at the very beginning, he says, I can never know anybody's heart. But in the process of being part of the Great Awakening, seeing thousands of people make decisions, okay, some of which legitimate, some proved not to be. Although I can't know anybody's heart, here's what I've made sense of in terms of 12 things that seem to be a good sign of real faith and 12 things that aren't. Listen to this excerpt. When once a hypocrite has thus established in a false hope, he's talking about things that aren't a sure sign of salvation. He has not those things to cause him to call his hope in question that oftentimes are the occasion of the doubting of true saints. I sent this excerpt to a a friend recently that had some questions about, man, is there any room for doubt? Can we be confident and yet doubt? And he nicely handles this. The doubting of true saints, he says, first... The hypocrite has not that cautious spirit, that great sense of the vast importance of a sure foundation, and that dread of being deceived. The hypocrite, being one that, one of those thousands that he had the chance to pastor, that it had a moment, it had an experience, but then bailed on Christ. He said he didn't have a vast sense of dread a vast importance of a sure foundation and that dread of being deceived. Here's the second thing. The hypocrite has not the knowledge of his own blindness. Do you? He says, the hypocrite has not the knowledge of his own blindness and the deceitfulness of his own heart. I know mine will deceive me. Do you? The hypocrite says that it's not possible. And that mean opinion of his own understanding that the true saint has. 
Those, those that are deluded with false discoveries and affections are ever more highly conceited of their light and understanding. Here's the third thing. The devil does not assault the hope of the hypocrite as he does the hope of a true saint. That scratched an itch for me. Trying to figure out why. Is there room for doubt and yet faith? The devil is a great enemy to a true Christian hope. Not only because it tends greatly to the comfort of him that hath it, but also because it is a thing of wholly heavenly nature, greatly tending to promote and cherish grace in the heart, and a great incentive to strictness and diligence in the Christian life. But he is no enemy of the hope of a hypocrite, which above all things establishes his interest in him that has it. A hypocrite may retain his hope without opposition as long as he lives, the devil never disturbing it nor attempting to disturb it. But there is perhaps no true Christian but what has his hope assaulted by him. Here's the fourth thing and the last. He who has a false hope has not the sight of his own corruptions, which the saint has. A true Christian has ten times so much to do with his heart and, his corrupt, and its corruptions as a hypocrite. And the sins of his heart and practice appear to him in their blackness. They look dreadful. And it often appears a very mysterious thing that any grace can be consistent with such corruption or should be in such a heart. But a false hope hides corruption, covers it all over, and the hypocrite looks clean and bright in his own eyes. I'm standing on those shoulders right there. That brings me comfort as I see darkness in my own heart from time to time. That brings me comfort as I see doubt in my own life from time to time. As I'm assaulted by Satan, it brings me comfort to know that, okay, maybe that's a sign of life. (laughs) I want to encourage you to be ambassadors of a true gospel. That's what we are in your homes in your workplaces, in Greenville. Are we just going to do church together? Are we going to be the church? I'd rather be the church with 15 people than do church with 1,000. I mean it. 1,000 would really scratch my human itch. I'd be like, man, look at at me and other elders. Look out. We got to build a new building. We got to plant a church. Look at us. What man wouldn't want to see something grow that you're part of? But we're not called to that growth. That's what God does. We're called to truth and faithfulness. He gives the increase. So let's be the church in the home. You've been equipped to enjoy something that's worth gripping. And you've been equipped with three really robust, awesome ways to respond. And let's be the church in our context. L3 the hospital, wherever it might be, the law office, pharmaceutical sales, doctor's office, the job site, work site, construction site, the lawns, I go, selling tires. Are we going to be a salty, bright, aromatic people that are encouraging in a context that says, ah, I had that event. Say, no, 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 no. There's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. And it's sweet. It's worth holding fast to. Let me stand and I'll dismiss you. It'll be okay if there's only 10 of us next week. I'm okay with that.
Salary might decrease a little bit. That's fine. We can handle that. I, I ain't joking. I'm not joking. Ten years ago, we were called to Greenville in this little bitty old tiny little church, five families. A couple of those families, like one or two people. Daniel was the only baby. And we're like, okay, if there's only 10 of us, let's be true. If there's 300 of us, let's be true. Let's not just do church. I'm not up for that. I'm not up for it. But if it's being the church, man, let's do that. That's hard work, but it's sweet. You've been equipped for it. Let me pray. God, I pray that we will be the people of God, equipped, salty, bright, aromatic, ambassadors of truth, giving an account for the hope within, speaking the truth in love. Lord, I pray that we will not be a people that are avoiding conflict, but a people that are bringing the gospel to bear in difficult situations and finding sweet peace on the other side. God, we trust you in all of that. I trust you and trust you with the sermon that was just preached. Even the discomfort of it, the awkwardness of it. I give all of it to you. I'm thankful that we have a truth that we can grip. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great week.